Amen. So glad to see all of you here. Okay. Let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to pray for us just one more time and we'll get started with our Sunday school class. Gracious Father, Lord, we come before you in humility this morning, this afternoon, Lord, with those very words that we just sang, Lord, you are our Father, we are your sons and daughters, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us, Uh, pray that you would renew a steadfast mind and heart and spirit within us this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith. Uh, to address you as Father, to believe all that the Word says concerning your fatherhood of us. And Lord, I pray that we would not believe the lies of the devil that he would try to sow, those seeds that he would try to sow in our minds. But Lord, I pray that you would come now. I pray that you would teach us what does it mean that you are a Father and how we might commune with you, Lord, and enjoy you as our Father by the mediation of your son Jesus Christ who brings us to God. Lord, I pray that you would bless this study. Pray that you'd give us uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, and a mind to apprehend something of your love and your gracious acts among us and to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Does this work? Okay. Somewhat. Okay, we're going to be studying the um, the fatherhood of God. Hope you enjoyed our last study on the attributes of God. That you're able to grow in your understanding, in your love, and to apprehend something of God's character, something of His fullness, um, of His excellencies. Uh, what we've decided to do is to turn our focus from the attributes of God and to the persons of the Trinity themselves. Um, communion with the triune God is what we're going to be studying over the next uh, six weeks or so. What does communion with God look like um, in the New Testament churches as they were growing more and more keenly aware of the nature of God through the revelation of God's word as it was being revealed to them more progressively? Apostle John could say, that our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.13. Um, sorry, 1 John 1.3. And Paul could say, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we're going to explore this topic of communion for the next uh, six weeks. I myself will be taking a couple of weeks to study the fatherhood of God. Uh, we have Brother Brian studying the sonship of Christ, and then we're going to have your pastor, uh, our pastor Lynn. He's going to be teaching over the Holy Spirit. So this study won't be much of a, a technical study on the Trinity, but more of a practical study um, We're going to be looking to answer questions in some detail. Who is the Father? 
Who is the Son? Who, who is the Holy Spirit? And what does our relationship with each member of the Trinity look like? So we'll be seeking to answer some of those questions. should be a very beneficial study. And uh, the goal of this study is to uh, enhance our understanding of uh, fellowship with, with each person of the Godhead um, and their work, try to understand their work in our lives. We understand very well, and rightly so, the person and work of Christ. But there would be no redemption without the personal work of the Father or the personal work of the Spirit. And so we'll be looking into, uh, into more detail about those. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the fatherhood of God together. So when we're contemplating and considering what God has revealed to us about himself as a father, that can be kind of difficult for some. God is a father. And my question to you is this, how might one's earthly father affect one's thoughts and relationship with their heavenly father? Yeah. Amen. What else? Yeah. On the flip side, that could also cause me to seek a more affectionate father and gravitate mm. a God that is more loving, you know, in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think it will, right? Yeah. I think it will once you meet the Heavenly Father. I would say also, uh, even if we have a, a godly father in this life, it's still kind of along those lines. Whether we have a godly father or an uh, ungodly father in this life, we can still pursue. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. A broken relationship with your earthly father tends to create a broken relationship with God the Father. Mm. Psychologically, most atheists are either single parent, were in a single parent home where only mother was there, or the father was pretty much absent or stayed. That's interesting. In the home. That's interesting. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, my dad did leave when I was very young, and knowing God's promise that He'll never leave you or forsake you, mm. to me, that meant the world. Because knowing that my earthly father is like, <laughs> and knowing Don. that God never will do that. Um, so sometimes they're not all in that category, though. Not always. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. A comment that um, sometimes you can, um, if you have a deficiency in your earthly father, people can create a God in the image of that is counter to the earthly father mm. not biblical oh. aspects of God that are true but because they resemble images that they didn't like in their own father they can create an idol that's true that's very true yeah I think the concept of fatherhood it may bring to memory past experience when you think of God as a father you probably have something in mind of what you have experienced as a father maybe it's Maybe it's someone cold, uncaring, like we've said, heartless. Maybe a never-present father, like uh, like we've mentioned. Um, and it's easy, in a sense, kind of like what you're saying, it's easy to bring uh, some of those preconceived notions about what a father is like into your relationship with your Heavenly Father. 
which could which could uh, which could cause uh, a lot of friction. It could it, it's a it's a very damaging lens. Uh, maybe your father uh, was always critical and never encouraging. Right. I think that's that's kind of my testimony is that my 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 father was was very critical and hardly encouraging. Maybe your father was distant. You never felt any kind of affectionate embracement or or uh, or love from them. Maybe we're like you said, like maybe someone is physically abusive, verbally abusive to you. Um, My dad was kind of like my coach. And so um, I think it can be easy for me to maybe when I'm out evangelizing, you have that coach mentality of God always yelling at you, you know, hand out one more track, you know, or, or just, you know, read one more chapter. You know, maybe you come into that, maybe you kind of, maybe you bring into, you know, your relationship, something like that. Or maybe your, your relationship with your dad was like an employee and a boss who's always measuring your performance and really had nothing good to say to you, right? Unless you met this standard. Unless you met that standard. And so um, if you bring these preconceived notions into your relationship with the Father, you will be putting the wrong kind of focus on the work you do for him, right? And the work you do for the Father. So viewing God through these lenses um, definitely has the power to corrupt your thoughts of God, to corrupt your affections for God, and to corrupt how you commune and experience fellowship with God as your father. And, um, and I think this is why grace can be such a hard concept to grasp. Because for many of us, you're working for the, uh, the acceptation or the acceptance of your father. And you only get it through performance. You only get it through maybe measuring up to some kind of standard. Um, and grace can be a hard concept. Even God being gracious to us can be a hard concept because it's the free love of God, uh, the undeserving love of God, right? You don't have to work for it. There isn't one thing you can do to earn grace. Uh, It's a most pure gift from the Father. Um, Adoption as sons of God is altogether unique in comparison to anything you will ever experience in this world, right? And it's it's, it's only experienced in Christ and um, this is what the, the work of adoption looks like, right? As sons and daughters, there isn't a given amount of work or a certain amount of accomplishments that you have to achieve um, in order to be accepted by God, right? We give nothing, absolutely nothing, in order to be accepted by God. But as a father, um, he gives everything, and you won't experience that in this world. Father giving everything to you, this free love, this undeserving love that never fails. Um, He gives everything in this, that he gives his son to accomplish everything necessary for you to become a son. Everything necessary for you to become a daughter of God. Um, to, To be called, to have the privilege to call God your father. Right. Um, uh, why is that kind of hit on it? But why is that crucial to understand the the nature of who God is? Why is that so crucial to understand? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. We we we, we want to take into this. We want to view God how He really is. 
Um, it really does. It really does. Your, and your theology it dictates how you live, right? Your orthodoxy dictates your orthopraxy, right? He gave up his son. God the Father gave up his son that you might be adopted as his sons and daughters, right? Truly, there is no father on earth like our father in heaven. From ever, this is, and this is interesting. From everlasting to everlasting, he is the father, right? He is the Father. Um, The fatherhood of God was established before time. Um, And once we begin to really think of it, it was established before time. Um, He is the first father. He is the eternal father. And he is the greatest and most preeminent example of what it means to be a father. Um, In fact, Before God was um, exercising justice as a judge, he was exercising love as a father. Before that. Um, So the title or the concept of the fatherhood of God doesn't just come from us. And then it's like something we ascribe to God. It begins with God, this concept of fatherhood, and it comes down to us. Um, every father, in some sense, is almost an imperfect picture of what the Heavenly Father looks like. Fatherhood begins with him. Fatherhood begins with him. Any questions on that? Yes. Amen. Amen. That's right. We're going to get into some of that too. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Pastor. Pastor. I'm sorry. Can you get my drink? It's on the last row. Right. So oh, that's good. No, that's true. That's true. That's good. Um, let's look into this. Let's look into this. I, I'm going to see if I can write down. I'm not sure where it is. I don't know. I just sent you on a mission. I don't know where it is. Uh, okay. Um, let's, let's do this. God is, Emilio told me I never write on the board, so I need to utilize this and try to provide some more order as father. Okay. And both, and both, we'll just say testaments. God is father in both testaments. So we can, let's, we can kind of explore this, um, He's father in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do we see the title father? Um, do we see the title of God as a father? Thank you. Um, more in the Old Testament or more in the New Testament? More in the New. <laughs> more in the New Testament. The, the name given to God as a father, meaning 
ever coming from the lips of someone, um, not in him, not comparing, not comparing God to a father, but him as a father is only mentioned about 15 times, 15 times in the old Testament. Um, but in the new Testament on the lips of Jesus alone, uh, just in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the, the name of father coming from the lips of Jesus 65 times. And in the gospel of John, you have it 100 times. So just in the gospels, you have the father's name being used 165 times. And the fatherhood of God can be distinguished, uh, uh um, in, in a few different ways into how he relates uh, uh, into how he relates to mankind. So I hope you can see this. This is the father as creator. Uh, this is the father as creator. And so in a very general way, we can say, not in a spiritual sense, um, but in a physical sense that God is the father of all people. Right, God is the Father of all people and, and, and the Father of all things in terms of his role and relationship to those things as the creator of those things. As his as him being the creator, yes. Whenever you get done explaining that part, yeah. please share with me how you respond to people who say, We're all God's children. Yeah. In light of mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well I'd say for yeah. I, I always make that distinction. That in a sense, you know, the Bible says that we are his offspring, right? Um, you see that he is the father of all spirits. We'll, actually, we'll get into some of these texts. But I say in a physical sense, but not in a redemptive sense, not in a spiritual sense. You, to be born once, you can be a child in a sense because by virtue of his creation of you, you bearing his image. But you must be born again in order to be uh, a son by redemption. A son through adoption is what I would say. Uh, yeah, a son through adoption. Creation, yeah. That's kind of how I would make a distinction with that. So then with that, yeah. would they still be able to, in, a, in one sense they can, I guess kind of request or obligate God's love towards them, but how would you explain the love of God being shown to someone who just thinks they are a child of God, and so the same love he shows to you, and him talking to me as a believer, and to themselves, they expect that to basically be the same. So yeah, yeah. Can you explain the difference? I can open it up. Do you want to? Yeah. God loves them by giving them beautiful days like this. Mm-hmm. Common grace. Common, common grace. It's, you know, there's obviously a distinctive, redemptive love that is shown to his adopted children that is not to the rest of the world. Mm. Um, so at, at the outset, the presupposition of your question is that God does not has that God has a subhuman love, a, a love that's not even on our level. Because our level of love is different. My love for my wife is different than my love for everybody else in this room. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a special covenant love. Whereas and that's how God is with His church, with His children. You know, the church is used. You know, it was spoken of as both the children of God as well as the bride of Christ. And so, you know, that covenant love that God has for His church is different than his common love and common grace that he has for the rest of the world. Were you going to say anything? Yeah, I was just going to say, I guess... Does that help? You probably know. As far as... I guess it's a positive thing, but... Yeah. Negative 
So I'd want them to do a reconcile that type of love, like that they're discussing, with the link and true scripture of hatred and enemy, and how that then relates into the same type of love that you would have for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since y'all can tell them that child of the devil, too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and I would and I would make that distinction. I wouldn't ever say we are all children of God because that denotes some kind of we're all part of his family kind of thing. But but I would say by creation you're not a part of God's family. Adam was. Adam was. And everyone would have been had he not fallen. Um uh, but he did fall. And so we have been separated from God as our father. Uh, there is a father, and, um, and, he, and he is no longer the father of all those by creation. Like he would have been the father of all those by, by, by creation, but now he is only um, the father of those who uh, have been born again by recreation. By recreation. And so... I would I, I would not go out preaching that God is the children of or God God is the father of all people. Uh, I would say He created them because you can you, you want to stay away from just confusing too many people. But um, but it's just so obvious in Scripture that you know the Bible says that God is a father. He that he, he we are His offspring that He created all of mankind by virtue of creation by virtue of them being um, uh, the handiwork of God. So just in that sense. Let's turn to a couple of those passages, though. We can look at them together. Go to Acts 17, 28. Good question, brother. Good, good question. Why did you qualify the statement um, about Adam being a child of God? Yeah. That he was a child as opposed to all of creation is not a child. Why was Adam a so, child? Yeah, like like in Luke three thirty eight says that he's the son of God, okay. like Adam. Like so, so he's the son of God, and and I would say he was a son. We would we would have all been sons of God, um, in a, in a in a in a saving way, meaning in a real intimate way. Um, if Adam would not have fallen, right? But he was the first son of God, um, in a in a um, creational standpoint. Yeah, right. So he was the first son, and um, you could say in a sense that he stopped becoming a son when he sinned, right? And when he was separated from God, when he died spiritually, um, and then he became a son through adoption, right? Through Christ, okay. through the sacrifice. Um, Acts, so Acts 17 28, Paul speaking to the men of Athens, Acts 17, 28, where he says this. He says, for in him we live and move and exist. And he's just speaking about God. And he said, even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. And so Paul pulls pulls from a resource that was probably well known in that time in support of what he was declaring to the men of Athens. So we have our existence from God, that he is the one who has fathered us all in the sense of creation. As he says here, that we live and move and we have our being. We live and move and exist. So he's speaking about here, just in creation, the the God who sustains all of us. And he says this, he says that even your own poets 
say, for we also are his offspring, being then the offspring of God. You see, he says we ought, we, he says we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or a stone, an image formed in the art or thought of man. So he's using this using this verse here or the this this own reference to a poet of theirs uh, to support this concept of, um, in a sense, we're all sons by creation, uh, but not in any sense in a redemptive sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, us today, we you know, might speak the terminology to say we are we are creations of God. Mm. Uh, you know, and we get our being from Him. Uh, you know, that in, in essence, it's saying the same thing as right. He is our Father's right. creation, you know, as well as we Father's creation. Just, just kind of, I guess, adding to that question, mm-hmm. it, it seems to clarify it. Sure. Sure. Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. And in comparison to those who do not regard God as Father, or do not regard God, the true God at all, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he says this. He says, yet for us, contrasting idols and idolatry, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we all exist. So we have one, there's one God, there's one Lord, one Father, and in relation to him there's one Son, who is Jesus Christ. And the Father is the source of all things, including mankind. He's the destination of all things. And the Son is the divine agent. He's the means of all things. Uh, let's turn to me. Let's just let's just we can go through just a couple more verses. One would be like Ephesians three, as well. Ephesians three, <clears throat> fourteen through fifteen. After he just got done, actually in verse nine, speaking of the God who created all things, and f- verses fourteen. Through 15, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So Paul invokes God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, um, as the Father with specific, with specific focus to his powerful role in bringing every being and family into existence. Um, God gives, like we j- actually, he just said in Acts 17, a little a little prior to the verse we just read, that God gives, uh, he gives every family by virtue of creation, their, uh, their existence, their own name, their individuality, where they will live. Uh, God is the one who sets the parameters of our lives. Not just ours, but every single person um, who lives on this earth. God sovereignly, um, sovereignly um, has designed uh, where the lots may fall in our lives and uh, the boundary lies, where we will live and things of that sort. 
And so it's to that God that he prays, this God who, who the maker of heaven and earth, uh, the God who is, as we see in even Hebrews 12, he is the father of spirits. Well, that just means he's the father of mankind. He's the father of spirits, and he is the father of lights. It says that as well, which most would say that that's speaking about like the angelic realm, like the angelic realm of uh, where God is is dwelling in inapproachable light, where his glory and presence is so manifestly um, shining. It says God, he's the father of spirits, so in that realm where God is dwelling, um, possibly means that. And so that's what, what I would take this to mean here. God is, he is the every family. That word family also means like rank. It can mean order, um, clan, or possibly like tribe, something like that too. So it could be referring to like orders and ranks of angels or different nations of people um, in that sense. Any questions? That. Um, like the verse, God is the father of spirits, is Hebrews 12, 9. Let's flip there. I'll take you to a couple of verses here as we just, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on to our next section. Hebrews 12, 9 says this. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? The Father of spirits and live. And uh, you see that verse is closely correlated to number 1620. And I think I, I'm going to go there for us. I know I'm having you flip. I hope that's okay, having you flip all over the place today. But number 1620. I have that right? Or sorry, no, it's not numbers. Number 1622, yes, thank you. Number 1620, but they fell on their faces and said, O God, thou God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will thou be angry with the entire congregation? Of course, he's speaking about the, the sins of the sons of Korah and their rebellion. And so you see, just in a couple of these verses, and there's many more that says this, that God is the, the creator of all spirits. He's the father of all spirits. Um, by virtue of creation and not by adoption. In a physical sense and not in any way in a spiritual sense. Um, this next one here. So the father as creator. Let me take some of this off. I write way too big. Can't even fit anything on here. Um, this next one is here. We've kind of mentioned it. Jonathan kind of mentioned it here. And it's the exemplary, the exemplary father. God is the exemplary father. Uh, he is the greatest example of what it means to be a father. F.F. F. Bruce said this. He said, God is the archetypal, which means he's the model. He's the standard. Uh, he is the archetypal father. Uh, all other fatherhood is a more or less imperfect copy of his perfect fatherhood. And so in the Bible, you can see how God describes himself in fatherly imagery, um, language that we can understand in comparison uh, to what we experience in our own earthly fathers. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 1, verse 30. Someone read that. Deuteronomy 1, verse 30 through 31. Maybe get there. Go ahead. Yeah, 31. Yes, sir. The Lord our God 
Isn't that incredible? Just as the Lord, just as the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, speaking of that God was carrying them like a father carried them. Um, turn with me to Psalm 103. What is Psalm 103? Psalm 103. Someone read that. Psalm, Psalm 103, verses 10 through th- 10 through 13. Okay. So good. I actually like this, the, that last verse. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust, or that we are dust. I've used that illustration all the time whenever I teach dust. God always compares us to dust. Something so frail, something so small. And I, that in a sense, I can kind of relate to that as like, you know, even like your children when they're so small, it's like they're just dust. I mean, they're just, he's saying they're so small, they're so frail, they're so weak, they're so incompetent, right? It's purely a monergistic relationship if you have an infant. You do everything. You do, you do absolutely everything. It's not right. That baby is not getting from point A to point B unless you move them. And they, yes, yeah, and you have to clean up after them. It, it, it really is. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. He knows God. We are like that. We are like that child. We are like that infant. He knows that we are frail. He knows our frame. He knows that we are nothing but dust. Incredible. Nothing but dust. Um, let's look at maybe just a couple more. Uh, Proverbs three. Let me know if you have any questions or comments on anything. Proverbs 3, uh, verses 11 through 12. Uh, someone read that for us. Okay. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Mm. For whom the Lord loves and reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Wow. Where else do you see that verse? Hebrews, right? You see in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Let's go there. Let's go there together. Hebrews 12. Yeah, uh, Hebrews 12, that's verse 5 through 6. You see, he quotes this verse, the same exact verse. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 6. The Hebrew Christians, just to give you a little bit of context. uh, What time is it? The Hebrew Christians, wow, time is flying. The Hebrew uh, Christians um, were growing weary, beginning to grow weary from their suffering, from their, uh, from their persecutions, and the greatness of those obstacles in their mind's eye was so big, so towering, that they 
began to grow virtually blind to the love that God had for them. That's why he says here in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you not as enemies, right? But as sons. Not as enemies, but as sons. And this word here, he goes on, he says, My son, do not regard lightly. What, what, what do your versions say on that? Do not despise. Anything else? Is it virtually the same? Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. This Greek word, regard lightly, oligoreo, uh, it means to despise. Do not despise. Do not make light of. Do not hold this in low esteem. Um, If I could paraphrase, he's saying, my son, do not despise my discipline and training. Or lose heart when I come to convict you and correct you and teach you. Yeah. We should value it. We should. I was actually going to speak on that too. Yes. Mm. But not to say that you're not, you shouldn't talk about, you know, the, this aspect of God. Yeah. But definitely, you know, try to define, you know, with that person that, you know, discipline that you may have experienced from an earthly father would not be like that that you would experience from, you know, our Creator. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really like the the sin in Ephesians. Do not provoke your children, fathers. It's very easy to discipline or provoke them from an evil heart, right? From a from a motivation that is lacking love, right? That and that truly, we've all experienced that to some. My my daughter has experienced that where I have, where I have either been maybe angry in my heart that I've had to go and ask her repentance, <clears throat> that I wasn't, um, I was not filled with love. And, um, and multiple times, you know, my relation toward, towards, <coughs> excuse me, towards charity. So I'd ask for her forgiveness, uh, that the Lord would give me a pure heart towards her. Yeah. Children too. Children, you should love discipline. Uh, and you should love your parents. And Proverbs it says that the uh, the father who spares the rod hates his son. And when you're asking for different parents, you're asking for those who hate you. Basically, you're asking for those who don't care about you. Um, and so it's it's um, it is is not wise to pray such a thing or to desire such a thing. Um, but you should desire godly parents, your parents to love you uh, the way they do from a godly perspective. <clears throat> so the author is quoting this verse because we need the constant reminder. You see that here? You have forgotten the exhortation. Um, we need to be realigned with this biblical perspective. Like as sons and daughters, this reaction like this reaction right here, which is probably they are not they're reacting not not remembering this, but this reaction is most natural to our flesh, 
and to our trials um, and in times of discipline. Our flesh doesn't really want anyone over us. Our flesh doesn't really want anyone to train us, to discipline us, or to correct us, or to rebuke us. That's not something we desire in our flesh, right? It's that, that, that's the reaction of the flesh. Um, but what is he saying? He's saying, beloved, don't forget that the hand you're swatting away is the hand of your faithful heavenly father who's coming to you, um, who gave his only son that he could have you, that he could redeem you. In essence, don't despise him. Um, God, God's motivations toward you are infinitely pure. His motivations are overflowing with love towards you for your own good. Yes. That reminds me of a song, Beautiful Eulogy, where mm. David Braille, he says, uh, I must mm. remember that nothing can come against me unless the Father gives consent. Mm. So when we're in that situation where we want to swap the hand away, per se, for what's happening, we must remember that the Father has given consent for this to come mm. to discipline us, to grow us, et cetera, et cetera. For our good. Um. <clears throat> We're out of time almost. I have so much. Yes? Just a quick question. The context of this verse in Hebrews 12, so you said uh, yeah. apparently the Hebrews, they were undergoing persecution. Yes. They were complaining about it. So, yep. so why, does, uh, why does the author of Hebrews consider that discipline? Um, I mean, if, did they do something wrong to be disciplined? Oh, like so like discipline in the Bible, um, like even in... Um, I would say here God is disciplining them. Disciplining is not always because, um, uh, like, it, it's, uh, like, for instance, he says here, uh, you go to, like, um, I believe it's First Timothy, right? Maybe I can get to it. First, maybe in First Timothy, for instance. Um, no, wait, Second Timothy. Yeah, Second Timothy, for God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Meaning, so God will discipline us for our good. God will discipline us not necessarily because we have sinned, but because he wants to train us in, in endurance, right? To run the race. You, you constantly need something to keep you in track, to keep you motivated. And it's the love of God coming upon you. So it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say, always because of, of um, sin or unrighteousness or something like that. Verse 4, though, is that you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. That's so right. That's kind of gives the indication that, hey, try it, you know, you've got to kill the flesh a little harder. Well, I would say that he's encouraging them in that verse. Like, and so it's, it's, he's encouraging them in this way. What does it say in verse three? For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, meaning Jesus has bore the greater weight of affliction and hostility for what purpose? So that you might not grow weary. So that you might not, what does it say? For that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted, I would say, to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Meaning, you have not resisted evil in such a way that you have died from it. 
right? You have not been overtaken by persecution. You have not been overtaken by some of these things in such a way that Christ was overtaken with these things so that you might not grow weary. So that, so Christ did that. Uh, that should be encouraging to them. They're not going to receive the greater weight of these afflictions. And he's reminding them, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. As he says here, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Right? That's where the, that's where the context is flowing from. Despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. They're going through these things. They're going through these persecutions, which are, to the author of Hebrew, they're not as heavy as what the Lord Jesus bore. Uh, they're not, and he was forsaken on the cross. And you are not forsaken in your afflictions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think their I think their um their mindset oh, we gotta, we gotta go. I mean if was here he would not like that. I just keep going on. Uh their mindset would be more like they they it was hard for them to believe in a sense. You have forgotten this exhortation, which addresses you as sons, right? You're not forsaken in the world, but God is bringing this on you for your discipline, um, for your discipline uh, to train you. Um, there's one author who said this. He says, um, um, we may feel God's hand as a father upon us when he strikes us as well as when he strokes us. Um, and so the evidence, I think, the, the, the temptation that the, the, the Hebrew Christians were falling into was they thought that their, suffoca- their sufferings, their persecutions were evidence of the absence of God, when in reality they were evidence of the nearness of God. Does that make sense? Helpful? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Amen. 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 That's all we got today. Let's wrap up. Thank you for thank you for your attention. Hope that's enjoyable. <clears throat>